Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mazigo. In today's episode, you will learn about Cho Do-sun, a man whose actions horrified the nation in 2008. But one question lingers still. Can being drunk truly excuse these monstrous actions that left an 8-year-old girl permanently disabled? Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Blanca Blanca, Jiwon Edwards, Nico, Elijah Hancock, Anominom, Dr. Bob, Maya 96, Lumos, Emma Brown, and Audrey for your support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on most social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free, as always, on Patreon. Warning, today's episode contains discussions of sexual assault involving a child. Listener discretion is advised. On the chilly morning of December 11th, 2008, in Ansan, Gyeonggi-do, a city just beyond Seoul's borders, Na Young, an eight-year-old girl, woke up early for school. She had breakfast with her father, while her mother had already headed off to work. With her school day ahead, Na Young grabbed her backpack and warm coat and embarked on a solitary walk along the bustling main road in her neighborhood. It was around 8.20 a.m. when she started her daily walk. Na Young favored the side street, finding it easier to walk to school without avoiding the bicycles and commuters who crowded the main street. This route she took ran along a higher elevation than the main road, which meant it had a biting chill from the dry, cutting winds that swept through this street. In retrospect, she would wonder whether the street's cold, frigid nature had deterred others from walking there that day. She was completely alone on that side road. To my international audience, it might seem unusual that such a young child would walk themselves to school independently, yet even today, it remains pretty common practice in South Korea. However, this horrifying ordeal Nayoung would endure at the hands of a monster would profoundly alter the perspective of many parents, causing them to reconsider allowing their children to walk alone to school. As she walked her usual route to school, Nayoung eventually reached a building that she had seen before, a three-story church nestled between apartment buildings. She had passed by it countless times before. However, on this particular morning, something was awry. There stood an unfamiliar man outside of the church's doors. Nayoung was only about 10 minutes away from her home at this point. It was 8.30 a.m. when she crossed paths with the man. The man with dark black hair, middle-aged face, and an exhausted demeanor, appeared to be loitering aimlessly. He offered her a friendly greeting, asking, do you attend this church? He was trying to gain her trust by slowly approaching her. She replied, no, I go to a different church. Yet, before she could distance herself from him, he began to move closer. His speech was slurred and he was speaking too loudly. His breath reeked of alcohol. The man who was coming uncomfortably close to Nayang was Cho Do-sun, a 57-year-old man with a troubled 
past of 17 prior criminal convictions. In that moment, he manipulated Na Young into trusting him enough to let him get closer. He tried to portray himself as a friendly neighbor with a desire to show her his church. As he approached Na Young, she began to back away, but suddenly he hugged her tightly like a grandparent would. As he picked her up, he covered her mouth tightly with his hand. He continued to talk to her as he carried her inside the empty church. You must go to this church, he said. The church's lobby was open to the public, and he made his way through, down the hallway, to a single-stall family bathroom while carrying the resisting eight-year-old girl. I'd like to take a moment to pause and repeat today's content warning. The following information will involve details of violence and sexual assault involving a child. I will not include any graphic details or descriptions. Listener discretion is advised. Chodo Sun locked the bathroom door and closed the toilet seat lid before setting Na Young down. The terrified child was not able to overpower him, but she continued to kick, scream, and try to break free of his grasp. He began to yell at the girl to perform oral sex on him, but Na Young screamed at the man and tried to hit him. Cho Du Sun began to punch Na Young's face repeatedly as she screamed. He chose to bite her cheek until it bled to get her to quiet. Cho's violence continued to escalate rapidly. He began to strangle Na Young until she passed out completely. Likely, he believed that she had died from this. While she was unconscious, he sexually assaulted the girl multiple times. Cho Du Sun fled the scene shortly afterwards. Na Young had suffered multiple injuries, but regained consciousness close to 9 a.m. and crawled out of the bathroom. She began screaming, Saria Josea, please save me. A person walking outside heard the screams and ran into the building to find Na Young, covered in blood, laying in the hallway, unable to crawl any further. The Good Samaritan called 119 and the police and ambulances were dispatched. The forensic investigation team at Don Juan Police Station received a call from the district police reporting a child sexual assault case, immediately recognizing the gravity and sensitivity of the situation. It was clear that finding the perpetrator was the utmost importance. The meticulous information they gathered would prove crucial in comprehending just the sheer brutality of what Chodusan had done. The ambulance arrived at 9.10 a.m. The distance from the front door to the bathroom was approximately 20 feet, or just 6 meters. Although not a significant distance, the entire building was dark enough inside that it was difficult to see Nayung from outside of the building. As the EMTs evaluated Nayung's condition, their immediate focus fell upon the bleeding wounds on her face. Her face was terribly swollen, rendering her unable to even open her eyes due to the severe swelling. Her clothing was soaking wet with both water and blood, and she was on the brink of hypothermia. Her pants had been removed, prompting the EMTs to check for signs of trauma in the genital area. She was bleeding heavily from her anus. They rushed her to the nearest emergency department. Some of the officers accompanied the ambulance to the hospital, while the forensic team remained at the crime scene. They wore their protective gear, a crucial detail that I note because it is often pivotal in preserving evidence. Something that I complain about frequently because the lack of proper PPE often leads to the loss of evidence. The bathroom door was ajar when they arrived, and a trail of blood marked Na Young's desperate crawl. After the collection of blood samples from various spots in the small bathroom, the scene was preserved. Blood stains were detected on the floor, the closed toilet seat, the tiled wall, and within the sink. The entire bathroom bore evidence of being wet from being hosed down. Nearby, Na Young's school bag and 
shoes laid where they were discarded. On the floor, a clump of Nayang's hair had been gathered as well. Due to Cho rinsing the room down with water, fingerprint assessment proved challenging for the forensics team. To preserve evidence, the doors were disassembled and transported for further examination and potential fingerprint recovery. A rag had been used to wipe down most of the surfaces in the room where fingerprints were most likely to be found. The toilet's tank, the wall, and the sink. The glass front door also revealed no fingerprints, as Chodosun had used his body to push it open while carrying Nayang inside. After six hours of fingerprint dusting, three prints were successfully collected, appearing to originate from the left hand of the perpetrator. It became evident that Chodosun, intoxicated during his attempt to clean his fingerprints, had inadvertently touched the pull door handle and left behind an unwiped print. Although partially wiped, his thumbprint remained discernible near the handle's curve, providing a critical breakthrough in the investigation. As the forensic team diligently carried out their investigation, Nayang was rushed to a nearby gynecology emergency department, urgently requiring medical attention. Subsequently, she was transferred to Korea University Hospital where she underwent life-saving procedures. Tragically, she was left with permanent damage to her internal organs, resulting in the loss of 70-80% to of her intestines, necessitating the use of a colostomy bag. Over the course of the next eight months, Nayang's parents needed to drive her to Seoul every weekend to ensure that she received necessary medical care. In addition to her hospital visits, Nayang began counseling at the Sunflower Center, a facility dedicated to assisting sexual assault victims. Initially, she attended counseling sessions twice a week, a routine that continued for the next four years, spanning her elementary school years. To support their daughter's recovery, Nayang's father had to make the difficult decision to leave his job, dedicating his time to accompany her to Seoul. The family initially despaired that she would need to rely on the colostomy bag for the rest of her life, but Nayang's rehabilitation eventually led to her to be a candidate for a surgical procedure that would provide her with an artificial anus. While her physical injuries were being addressed, Nayang's battle against depression and PTSD persisted, a haunting aftermath of the traumatic assault that she had endured. Three days following the assault, on December 13, 2008, the National Police Agency successfully matched the fingerprints to an individual that was already in their database. This person was Cho Do-sun who lived just 500 meters away from the church the assault took place in. Records indicated that Cho Do-sun had a history of 17 prior convictions and had previously served time in prison for sexual assault. His wife attested to his frequent intoxication, suspecting him of being an alcoholic. He had been employed as a security guard. Initially, Cho Do-sun vehemently denied any involvement in the crime during both the initial and second hearing. He claimed that he had never been to the church in question and that on the day of the incident, he had consumed such a large quantity of alcohol that his memory had failed him entirely. However, during the third trial, when presented with fingerprint evidence, he altered his statement. He admitted to visiting the area to use the bathroom as he took a leisurely walk through the neighborhood and claimed to have encountered a man who was exiting the bathroom. He asserted that he had encountered the victim inside the bathroom, assisted her in getting up, but feared being wrongly accused and confessed to 
to fleeing the scene. The evidence collected, however, didn't align with this narrative. Authorities conducted a search of Cho's residence, seizing clothing items, including shoes and socks, stained with blood. Cho remained steadfast in his assertion that the blood resulted from a scuffle that he had engaged in at a bar, unaware that the blood had already been DNA matched to Nayang. In an attempt to deceive the prosecution, Cho continued to make counter-arguments. He emphasized that Nayang had described her attacker as having black hair, while he now had white and graying hair, insinuating that the discrepancy would exonerate him. Additionally, he claimed that he wears glasses regularly, whereas the assailant in Nayang's account had not been wearing glasses. However, those familiar with Cho would attest that he often didn't wear his glasses because they were only for reading. A fact supported by evidence, such as the video recording of him being arrested with black hair because he dyed it and wearing no glasses. Cho also sought to establish a false alibi by recounting that on the morning in question, he had risen early to heat water for his wife's shower. He further claimed that he had watched television on the sofa until 11 a.m. However, his wife contradicted this account, stating that he had returned home shortly after 9 a.m., changed his clothes, and then proceeded to jump in the shower. She recalled that afterwards he did not speak to her but instead went directly to sleep. When confronted with his wife's testimony, Cho could only offer a feeble response that he couldn't remember the events accurately because he was intoxicated. I will say that his wife, while contradicting his testimony, remained loyal to him and insisted that he was a good man and this happened because he was drunk. Cho Do-sun resorted to any means possible to evade punishment. He performed a deep bow towards the judge when entering and displayed a complete lack of acknowledgement or empathy towards the victim and her family in the courtroom. He never even once looked at the victim or her family. As part of the trial proceedings, Chodosun underwent an assessment using the psychopathy checklist revised, which yielded a score of 29 points, surpassing the threshold of 25 points that was indicative of a diagnosis of psychopathy, which, to be said, is a higher amount of points than some serial killers with multiple victims. Throughout this trial, he maintained the argument that he shouldn't receive a lengthy sentence, citing his age of 57 and claiming that he was too elderly and frail to endure a lengthy prison. Term. However, the defense ultimately discovered a potential avenue for sentence reduction, which was his state of intoxication. In South Korea, reduced sentences are granted to individuals who can demonstrate that at the time of the crime, they had mental incapacitation, which is an inability to comprehend or control one's actions which can include being under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Unfortunately, the legal landscape often results in lighter sentences for cases of violent sexual assault when the perpetrator's inebriation is brought up as a defense strategy. Initially, he was handed a life sentence, but this was subsequently reduced due to his state of inebriation. The official wording in this context refers to his weakness of mind and body as a state in which one has lost their reason to the extent that normal judgment became impossible possible. Chodusun received a reduced sentence of 12 years in prison and was mandated to wear an ankle monitor for a period of seven years. He was confined to a special cell within Chungsan prison. Officially, he faced charges related to the sexual assault and injury of a minor under the age of 13. The maximum penalty for this offense ranges from 7 to 15 years of imprisonment. The judge explicitly considered his state of intoxication in delivering his judgment. The most significant 
significant issue during the trial stemmed from the prosecution's apparent lack of empathy towards Na Young and her family. First, Na Young, an eight-year-old child, was compelled to testify in court on five separate occasions. Testifying is already traumatic enough for adults, and she was made to face the man who assaulted her. Disturbingly, witness screens were not provided to shield Na Young from seeing Cho Do-sun, leaving her exposed to her attacker's gaze during the proceedings. Moreover, the prosecution mishandled parts of the evidence collected from the assault and failed to submit them for consideration in the trial, specifically evidence collected from Nayang's rape kit. They also neglected to make efforts to challenge the claim of intoxication, allowing the defense to repeatedly question Nayang about whether she detected the smell of alcohol on Cho Do-sun that fateful day. She truthfully confirmed that she did, and as a consequence, because the prosecution did not contest the defense emphasis on intoxication, it became relatively simple for them to evoke sympathy and raise doubts about whether Cho Do-sun had been his quote-unquote true self during the incident. So who really was Cho Do-sun? Cho Do-sun, born in 1952, was the youngest of five children in a poverty-stricken family. His father, a monk, also battled alcoholism and was an abusive presence in both the lives of his children and his spouse. Tragedy struck when Cho Do-sun was just 10 years old, as his father's life ended tragically when he fell into an outhouse-style toilet. Then, his mother suffered a debilitating stroke, leaving her paralyzed. Cho Do-sun followed in his father's troubled footsteps and displayed signs of violence from a very young age, earning a reputation as a bully during his elementary school years. Ultimately, he dropped out of school in his sixth grade at the age of 12. His first brush with criminal activity occurred at age 18 when he stole a bicycle. As a first-time offender, he was placed under new guardianship as a penalty. However, two years later at the age of 20, he dove deeper into criminal behavior, extorting money by threatening individuals working at market stalls in Daejeon. This marked the beginning of his stint as a petty thug until he was apprehended and sentenced to one year and six months in a juvenile detention facility, which had jurisdiction over offenders up to the age of 23. During this time in his life, Cho Do-sun's mother succumbed to a second stroke. It was at this point that his struggle with alcohol dependency began. Several years later, in 1977, at the age of 25, he spiraled further into a life of crime and became a habitual thief, resulting in an eight-month prison sentence. After his release, he found employment at a music cafe and supplemented his income by running a street market during the evenings. Now 31, he committed his first sexual assault against a 19-year-old girl, inflicting injuries that necessitated surgery and a month-long treatment. This horrific offense led to a three-year prison term. Surprisingly, none of these punishments deterred him from persisting in his criminal activities. Following subsequent releases from prison, he accrued numerous fines for various offenses, including instances of physical violence towards bar hostesses. During all of this, he got married to a woman 15 years his junior and experienced the tragic loss of their infant son. By 1995, at the age of 43, Cho Do-sun escalated to the heinous act of murder. After meeting an old man in a bar, Cho Do-sun was upset by hearing the man express support for past dictators, President Chan Doo-wan and President Oh Tae-woo. In a fit of rage, he mercilessly beat the man to death using only his fists. His violent act resulted in a conviction for causing death by physical injury, which initially carried a five-year prison sentence. However, this term was later reduced to a two-year sentence due to his intoxication at the time of the incident. 
and his plea of mental weakness. Cho was not charged with murder because the man died from his injuries after Cho had left the bar and Cho was too drunk to remember what had happened. I don't know in what world that makes sense. But even before he attacked Nayang, Cho Doo-sun had amassed a staggering 17 criminal charges, illustrating he had a long history of criminal behavior. Expert analysis identified Cho Doo-sun as suffering from intermittent explosive disorder, a condition classified in the DSM-5 under impulse control and conduct disorders. This disorder is characterized by recurrent episodes of behavioral outbursts, which reflect a failure to regulate aggressive impulses, manifesting as verbal or physical aggression. These recurrent episodes of aggressive behavior are typically spontaneous, not premeditated, and are often rooted in anger or impulsivity rather than driven by financial gain. Unfortunately, Cho's unresolved issues with anger control and a history of receiving inadequate punishments for his crimes, including sexual assault and murder, allowed this to happen. He received similar penalties for theft as he did for the grievous act of taking another person's life. So who do you think Cho Doo-soon truly is? Surprisingly, the public remained unaware of this case throughout the trial's proceedings, which resulted in a lack of public outcry when the verdict was delivered. It wasn't until September 2009 that the general population learned of the existence of this heinous crime. Initially referred to as the Nayang Incident, the case was later renamed the Cho Doo-soon Sexual Assault Case in an effort to shift the focus away from the victim. As the crime gained national attention, concerned citizens initiated movements to raise funds for the family's legal protection and overall well-being. Nayang, now 23 years old, continues to receive ongoing psychiatric treatment. As of 2020, her father conveys that she has had to adapt her life. She exclusively watches children's cartoons and avoids dramas, reality television, and the news as a measure to shield herself from any reminders of the assault. She remains in the same residence with her family, and when urged by her parents to move to a new home and leave behind the painful memories, Nayang insists on staying in Ansan. Her reasoning is rooted in a deep concern about the challenges of adapting to a new school environment as she wonders, how many friends could I make, and would they ostracize me? She values the understanding and support system that she has received from her friends in Ansan. Nayang can't forget the hardships that she had to endure during her school years following the assault. Managing her colostomy bag at school proved to be challenging, with occasional mishaps like breakages or overfilling during school hours. Fortunately, her teachers showed compassion and allowed her to go home to shower whenever was needed. Remarkably, throughout the last four years of her elementary schooling, Nayoung never missed a single day of school. Her family rallied around her, adapting their routines to give her an enhanced sense of safety, and together they carry emergency notification devices that, when activated, promptly alert emergency services and one another. Cho Doo-soon, who was released from prison on December 13, 2020, expressed his intention to return to his home in Ansan, where he had lived with his wife. His wife, steadfast in her belief that her husband was not a bad person, eagerly awaited his return. However, their residence is situated approximately 500 meters away from Na Young's family home is. Shockingly, his restraining order permits him to approach as close as 100 meters from her home. The proximity raised significant concerns for Na Young's family, who feared the chance of encounters that could occur while walking around their own neighborhood. 
Understandably, Nayang's father was consumed by anger and even offered to incur debt to have Cho Doo-soon and his wife relocate away from the city. He pleaded desperately, the trauma has never healed. My family can never sit together and watch TV or movies because at some point, she will see something that makes her collapse. Nayang had refrained from watching anything beyond the children's cartoons since the incident. Even during university years, she steadfastly refused to have television or radio in her room. Nayang's family asked the government of Ansan City to intervene and persuade Cho Doo-soon to move away from the area. It was during this time that the entire nation of Korea resonated with Nayang's family. Citizens of Ansan and people across Korea were enraged that Cho had been not only released from prison, but was permitted to live so close to the young girl that he victimized. Cho Doo-soon had made promises of reflection, sobriety, and a commitment to avoid any retaliation against the family. However, to the victim's family, his return to Ansan was a form of retaliation itself. They believed that his presence forced Nayang to live in constant fear of her own neighborhood. In response, the city authorities proposed an alternative to around-the-clock surveillance, suggesting that they provide the victim's family with smartwatches equipped with proximity alarms. These alarms would trigger if Cho Doo-soon, who was wearing an ankle monitor, approached within the 100 meters of them. This arrangement meant that the family lived in perpetual anticipation of the smartwatches going off, constantly monitoring their surroundings. It felt as if they were being asked to wear ankle monitors themselves, a burden that they would have to bear for the next seven years as well. To enhance safety for residents who feared Cho's release, the city installed 71 CCTV cameras in the vicinity around the victim's home. The monitoring and tracking initiative for Cho Doo-soon incurred a cost of about 200 million Korean won, which is equivalent to $150,000 within the initial four months. Nevertheless, many believe that this expense was justified given the circumstances and the need to safeguard the community. Since the conclusion of the trial and Cho Doo-soon's release, numerous bills and legislative proposals aimed at preventing similar situations have been put forth, but none have successfully passed into law. The first proposed bill sought to deter repeat offenses by segregating individuals who commit sex crimes against minors into living facilities separated from society. However, this failed to gain approval due to concerns about potential human rights violations, particularly since many Koreans remember the mass arrests without warrants and confinement of individuals in facilities like the Brothers Home during the 1980s. You can listen to the Brothers Home episode to learn more about these atrocious concentration camps. Furthermore, lawmakers have suggested extending the protection zone for victims by an additional 200 meters. There have also been legislative proposals to prohibit Cho from visiting places that have children or from ever consuming alcohol again. But neither of these measures have been enacted. In response to the weakened sentences given to crimes committed under the influence of alcohol, a petition garnered the support of over 876,000 citizens. This petition was ultimately rejected. The family encountered certain challenges in relation to the welfare assistance that was offered by the city following the assault. In order to cover the extensive hospital expenses and provide for their basic living needs, Nayang and her family had been receiving subsidies from Ansan City. However, their health insurance provider also granted them a sum of 40 million Korean won to offset the medical costs. Because of this, the mayor's office sent an official communication to the family stating that their bank account now contained an amount deemed excessive to continue receiving the city's welfare support, which was close to 3 million 
million won, or a little more than 2,000 US dollars. It's important to note that the medical treatment and counseling required were quite expensive, even with the assistance provided by health insurance. The insurance payout had been intended to alleviate this financial burden, ensuring that they wouldn't have to worry about these costs. However, the parents were unable to work due to their caregiving responsibilities and relied on the welfare payments for all living expenses. When news of this situation reached the public, the mayor's office faced criticism on their website over the decision. Ultimately, the city was compelled to reverse their stance and continue providing welfare support to the family. Additional changes resulted from petitions submitted by concerned citizens. One significant aspect was the anonymity of Chodu Sun during the trial. His face remained concealed, and remarkably, his photograph was not publicly disclosed until 11 years later in 2019. Furthermore, Chodu Sun was not not listed on the sex offender registry because the website dedicated to the registry wasn't established until 2010, which was two years after the trial concluded. This case has received a substantial amount of misinformation, much of which remained unchallenged until very recently and was consistently propagated through major news outlets. In my previous coverage of this case, many of these inaccuracies were still widely accepted. Therefore, I want to change all of the inaccuracies I previously had reported. False information started circulating as the case gained notoriety, and these rumors resurfaced upon Chodusun's release from prison. Reports began to include details of the crime that lacked any evidence. For instance, there were claims that Chodusun had used a toilet plunger, a pipe, or a drill during the attack, even though there is no verifiable evidence to substantiate the claim. These are false. Additionally, minor rumors about his past and prior convictions spread, and much of this information was being propagated by sensationalist reporters. As well, since photographs of Chodosun were not released for quite some time, a photograph of another offender, who is a teacher who is a sex offender, was released with Chodosun's name, and a quote was attributed to him that the teacher had said, A woman will experience sexual assault anyway, so why does it matter? This was not said by Chodosun, but the sex offending teacher whose photo was shared wrongfully. Later, a news report stated that he had said that Chodosun was doing a thousand push-ups a day for fear of retaliation after prison and that he was treated poorly by other prisoners. They reported that Cho was beaten by his prison cellmates, but the Ministry of Justice clarified that he never shared a room with anyone. He was always in a private room since his sentencing began and that the informant was another inmate. Chodu soon exercised the same amount as any other prisoner and he was getting older. He wasn't in very good shape, so I'm not sure where those rumors originated. YouTubers also started maliciously pretending to be Cho's children and threatening citizens that their father would get out and want to retaliate. Following his release, content creators, journalists, and citizens gathered outside of his residence, publicly revealing his location or doxing him and staging 24-hour protests. During these demonstrations, some individuals attacked his car, hurled derogatory slurs, and filmed the villa in anticipation of seeing him. While their anger was understandable, it was ultimately the neighbors who suffered and contacted the police to bring an end to the protests. The protests ended until February 9th, 2021, when a man in his 20s confided in his friends that he felt compelled to take action against Chodu Soon. He left his residence carrying a bag containing a knife and headed to Cho's home at 5 p.m., passing by the police officers who were monitoring Cho's residence. 
Upon entering the main doors of the villa, the man was intercepted by a police officer inside. He was apprehended, and during questioning, he stated, I must punish Chodu soon so that I can live. He received a sentence of six months in prison, along with two years of probation. However, this penalty did not deter the man who perceived himself as a vigilante. After serving his six-month sentence, he made another plan to visit Cho. On December 16th, 2021, at 8.50 p.m., he returned to the villa, this time disguised in a police uniform and concealing a heavy hammer. He knocked on the door, demanding entry into Cho's home. After being granted entry to the apartment, he launched an attack on Cho, prompting his wife to scream and alert nearby police officers who arrived promptly and arrested the man. Chodo Soon's injuries were not life-threatening, and as far as the public knows, he is still alive living in the same apartment. The arrested man shouted, Life has no meaning. If I punish Chodo Soon, my life will have value. He was subsequently sentenced to one year and three months in prison for charges related to home invasion and causing injury. There have been various media adaptations centered around this case, and on Patreon, later I will discuss the Korean webtoon manhwa titled Vigilant which drew inspiration from this incident. Additionally, a film called Wish, based on this case, was released in 2013. This film garnered considerable attention and was given the approval of the victim's parents for production. It's a deeply moving movie, and if you have the opportunity, I recommend watching it. Nayang, since 2020, has passed her Sunung, or college scholastic ability test, and has aspirations of completing medical school. Nayang, even though we will never have the chance to know or speak to you, and perhaps that's for the best, it's clear that she won't hear these words, but I hope she can take solace in the knowledge that her country mourned for her, fought for her, and continues to do so eternally. It remains extremely important to never forget and to actively help those who need it. The leniency in sentencing that Chodu Soon received actively allowed this unimaginable suffering to happen to her. Had Chodu Soon faced harsher punishments that were equal to the gravity of the crimes he committed, this might have never happened. The judicial system's top priority should be to protect its citizens, especially vulnerable people like children. This case outlines the critical need for a comprehensive reform in the approach to criminal justice, especially in cases involving sexual assault and violence against minors. A lot of change has been happening in Korea as of the early 2020s, but there is still more work to be done. Wherever you live, please advocate for laws that prioritize the safety and well-being of victims, ensuring that they are shielded from further harm and are given the support they need to heal. As always, we should strive to prevent tragedies like this from happening again and create a safer, more compassionate society. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you'd like to vote on future episode topics, join Korean True Crime's Patreon today. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send feedback, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.